high-speed world of Formula One racing, every bit of weight matters, including the paint. If you strip, say, 500 grams off the car, it's worth about 0.015 seconds, which doesn't sound like much, but it does make a difference. It's Friday, October 20th, and today is Science Friday. I'm sci-fi producer Shoshana Buxbaum. This Sunday, it's the Formula One Grand Prix in Austin, Texas. And thanks to the Netflix series Drive to Survive, F1 racing is more popular than ever. We'll talk about the feats of engineering that make these cars so special and explain how aerodynamicists design custom parts to push cars over the finish line. Just a split second faster. But first, we'll check in on some of the week's science news with sci-fi producer Kathleen Davis. Last week, the Department of Energy announced seven clean hydrogen hubs. Together, these hubs will receive a total of $7 billion in funding. They're tasked with figuring out how to make hydrogen fuel with little or no emissions. Joining me now to break down the details of this big announcement and other top science news of the week is my guest, Casey Crownhart, climate reporter for MIT Technology Review in New York City. Casey, welcome back to Science Friday. Thanks so much for having me back. It is nice to have you back. So tell me, what kinds of hydrogen fuel projects are these federal dollars going towards? There's really a huge range of projects here. And so each of these seven regional hubs actually has a couple of different approaches towards making and also using hydrogen. The goal here is kind of to kickstart a whole industry for clean hydrogen. So some of the projects use low carbon electricity, so renewables like wind and solar or nuclear power to make hydrogen fuel. Others, and this is kind of where some of the controversy around this comes, uh, use fossil fuels and then try to capture the carbon while they're making hydrogen. There's a really wide range of projects. It's really, really interesting to see. So we have been talking about the promise of clean hydrogen fuel for years on this show. I mean, is this enough funding to kickstart the industry and make this low or no emission carbon fuel a reality anytime soon? Oh, that's a great question. Um, (laughs) I will say that this is kind of part of a whole strategy by the U.S. and, you know, kind of internationally to make hydrogen fuel actually happen. So this funding comes from the infrastructure law that was passed a couple of years ago. Um, There's also going to be funding from the climate bill or the Inflation Reduction Act that helps to subsidize clean hydrogen production. So I think in combination with some of those other things, people are really interested to see if this is the boost that the industry really needs to make this fuel uh, more economical. Yeah. And you hinted at this, but there are some critics of these clean hydrogen projects, right? Yeah. I mean, it all depends on kind of how you define clean. Like you said, the goal here is to make hydrogen with as few emissions as possible. Because when you burn hydrogen, there's no greenhouse gases. Um, You're just making water. So it all depends on kind of how you're making the fuel. If you're making it with renewables, thumbs up, good to go. If you're making it with fossil fuels and you're trying to capture that carbon, there's kind of a lot at stake with that kind of technology. And it's a technology that hasn't really been proven at scale. Some critics say that this is kind of entrenching the role of fossil fuels. Um, So I think those projects are kind of being watched very carefully by a lot of folks in the climate community. Mm -hmm. So let's move on to another piece of news about fuel this week. The EPA has officially classified leaded fuel as a danger to public health, which 
Casey, I have to say I was shocked to learn that leaded fuel was still being used at all. I mean, who is still using leaded fuel? This is a great question and actually exactly the reaction that I had to this news as well. Leaded fuel used to be everywhere. We used to use it in in cars and everything. It was added to fuels to make engines work better. And as we started to learn that lead is not so great for public health, it was phased out pretty much everywhere except for small planes. So small planes today, you know, the ones that carry between like two and 10 passengers, a lot of those still use leaded fuels today. Okay. And I would imagine these smaller planes, smaller airports are maybe in communities that are maybe closer to people than like a normal large international airport would be. Yeah, I think that that's really right. The EPA identified that up to 5 million people who live near these small airports could be affected by these leaded fuels, which is why they took this step to kind of start the process of potentially phasing it out. Okay, so what's the timeline that we're looking at here? It's not totally clear yet. So this step is just kind of the first step that the agency needs to take, and then it'll, you know, continue to set rules. It could be around 2030, maybe. That's what industry groups want to happen. So, I mean, a few years yet, but, you know, hopefully soon we'll uh, get the lead out of fuels. I hope so. (laughs) Speaking of phasing things out, our next story is about how the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service declared 21 new extinct species. So Casey, give us, I guess, the highlights, lowlights, I don't know what the right word is for this, um, about these new extinct species. Yes, a much more unfortunate phasing out here. So like you said, there are 21 species that were just declared extinct. There's a lot of birds, a bat, a lot of freshwater mussels on this list. Those have all been labeled extinct. Those were part of a list that was proposed two years ago. And so now officially the government has said, we really think these species aren't around anymore. We're going to kind of stop spending money looking for them and protecting them and and so on. Mm. So there's one species that is notably not on this list, uh, and that is the ivory-billed woodpecker. Why has this specific move been controversial? Yes. So the ivory-billed woodpecker was on the list two years ago to be proposed for delisting but it did not make this final list. And that's very controversial because there's not been a reputable sighting of this bird for about 80 years. Ivory-billed woodpeckers were the largest species of woodpecker in North America. They're very distinctive, um, but because of habitat destruction, because of hunting, their populations were absolutely decimated. But it's been this really interesting thing where every few years or so, there will be a sighting where somebody says, hey, look at this super grainy video, this super blurry photo that I have, I saw an ivory-billed woodpecker. And birders and and birding experts are like, no, that was not an Mm -hmm. ivory-billed woodpecker. And so it is kind of interesting that the agency did not kind of throw in the towel on these birds, even though most experts say it is really time to to let the ivory-billed woodpecker go. Interesting. Well, we will keep an eye on that. We have another animal story, but luckily this story is about animals that are alive and well (laughs) and thriving, and they're actually working as research assistants. Uh, (laughs) Seals have helped scientists map a deep canyon in Antarctica, 
this sounds kind of bananas to me. Can you tell me about this? I know. I love this story. And I love it because this isn't the first time that this has happened. Like scientists have (laughs) used seals as research assistants before. But there's this new study where basically researchers put trackers on elephant seals and Weddell seals. And seals often dive really deep into the ocean. And so by comparing where seals were diving with kind of known maps of the seafloor, Scientists were able to find that in some spots, seals were diving deeper than they thought was possible. They thought, okay, the ocean is this deep, but then they were noticing that seals were diving deeper than that. And so that helped them find this large hidden canyon, which they later mapped with sonar. So yeah, the cutest research assistants. Yeah. And it sounds like these scientists were like, okay, these seals were already doing this thing that we would like to explore. (laughs) Let's just throw some some devices on them and see what information we can get. Yes, I love it. And it's kind of fun, but also this could be important because these deep canyons can move warm water around in the Antarctic region. And that can really affect how ice melts. And so it could be Mm. really important as we try to understand how ice is melting with climate change. Okay, so let's move on to another story, and this is about a new number that just dropped. Researchers calculated how many living cells exist. So, Casey, just how many living cells are there? There are one nonillion living cells, Okay, which is 10 to the 30th power. These numbers really break my brain. That means that there are a trillion times more living cells than number of sand grains on the planet and a million times more living cells than the number of stars in the universe. Okay, so aside from this just being completely mind-boggling, I mean, why is it important for us to know this? Yeah, so researchers did this, and then they also kind of used that to calculate how many living cells have ever existed. And so by having these estimates, they're kind of able to predict, you know, in the really, really distant future, how might cells grow, how, how much life could the planet sustain in theory, just kind of giving us a window into kind of the deep past and the deep future. Okay, so now that you've broken our brains, <laughs> it's time to burn our tongues with some very spicy news. The Guinness Book of World Records has crowned a new spiciest pepper. So Casey, I mean, give me the lowdown. How spicy is this pepper? It's really, really, really spicy. The name of it is Pepper X. And you might be familiar with this scale called Scoville heat units. And that's kind Mm -hmm. of how we measure spice. Um, So like bland food is a zero. A jalapeno is about 5,000. Bear spray is 2.2 million. And Pepper X is 2.69 million Scoville heat units. So spicier than bear spray. I mean, how do you even grow a pepper that is this spicy? (laughs) Um, So there is a spicy pepper expert. His name is Ed Curry, and he crossbreeds peppers. And so Pepper X is actually the hybrid of the Carolina Reaper, which was the old record holder at, you know, a measly 1.64 million Scoville heat units. And so he crossed that pepper with some other mysterious pepper that he is not revealing to come up with. (laughs) Yes, it's very protected. Very mysterious. Mm -hmm. I mean, if this is spicier than bear spray, I would imagine it doesn't taste that good. What is the point of making such a spicy pepper? 
I don't know. I want to, this pepper to stay as far away from me as possible. I don't want anything <laughs> to do with it. People that have eaten it say that after all of the pain subsides, there's sort of an earthy taste to it. So mm. I guess there really are people that are interested in this. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll have to find uh, someone else who's brave enough to uh, take a bite out of this pepper. But that is all the time that we have for now. Thank you so much, Casey, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Casey Crownhart, climate reporter for MIT Technology Review. She's based in New York City. Say you're an engineer working for a Formula One team and you need to figure out how to reduce weight from your ultra fast car to new minimum weight requirements. Maybe you turn to the construction of the frame of the car or you find lighter engine parts. But as of the last couple of years, many teams have been stripping the paint off of the cars instead to save weight and get that little extra bit of speed. Dr. Kyle Forrester is a former aerodynamicist for the Mercedes AMG F1 team. He runs the YouTube channel Kyle Engineers and is a lead aerodynamicist for JKF Consultants. He's here to break down the engineering changes made to Formula One cars in recent years, the newest in paint science, and what aerodynamic changes he has his eye on in the years to come. Welcome to Science Friday. Oh, hey, how's it going? Good, good. Glad to have you here. So, Kyle, you used to work as an engineer for the Mercedes F1 team. Can you tell us about what it's like to be an aerodynamicist for a team? Yeah, well, basically, uh, the the job, which some people may not know quite what it is, is to make the cars faster. And the way that the aerodynamicists make the cars faster is by changing all the little bodywork components all over the car uh, to just get marginal gains here and there that you add up and snowball over the course of the year that progressively make the car faster and faster around a circuit, primarily by increasing the downforce, which is the aerodynamic force pushing down on the car, pressing the tire into the road, and reducing the drag, which is the aerodynamic force pushing the car backwards and, and essentially slowing it down in a straight line. Uh, so obviously being an aerodynamicist, working in Formula One is basically the, the pinnacle for a motorsports aerodynamicist. And you get to do some really cool stuff there because there's obviously large budgets. You've got a lot of really cool wind tunnel uh, equipment that you can use. Uh, and also the computational resources are really strong too. So you get to do some really, really good experimentation that you can't really do anywhere else in the world. Yeah, it sounds really exciting. Before we get into some specifics, can you tell me a little bit about how these cars actually get made? I mean, I imagine it's not like you can just go to your local auto parts shop and pick something off the shelf. <laughs> yeah, no. So the, these cars, basically every component on them is bespoke. Uh, obviously, across the grid, uh, there's some standardized components and some things like tires specifically uh, that are common between the cars. Uh, but all the components like the, the core tub of the car, all the bodywork of the car, all that is uniquely developed by the teams. Uh, and then they will go and manufacture these components in-house. So the teams have varying numbers of employees from sort of 500 to 1,000 people. Uh, and there's a lot of engineers that basically design all these components. And then all the components are made in-house. Uh, there's some subcontracting out, but it's mainly made in-house from custom machined components and custom hand laid up bits. So it's all very customized. 
So there is this governing body of Formula One called the FIA, which sets these requirements for cars to meet. And a couple of years ago, they introduced new weight requirements for these cars. And some teams had heavier cars who wanted to trim down some weight. So why did they turn to reducing the amount of paint? I mean, to me, that doesn't seem like a natural uh, place to start. Yeah, well, it's one of those things where you're, you're kind of in the sport trying to get a lot of incremental gains. Uh, and every grand that you save on the car is a benefit. Now, the slopes for different cars vary, but roughly you could think of it as about 10 kilograms is worth around three tenths of a second per lap. Mm. And if you strip, say, 500 grams off the car... Uh, it's worth about 0.015 seconds, which doesn't sound like much, but at the Qatar GP for qualifying, that would have been the difference between seventh and eighth in qualifying. So it does make a difference. There's a minimum weight limit. There has been a minimum weight limit for a long time now, uh, but the minimum weight limit changes with each regulation set. Uh, when we moved to newer wheels and tires in 2022, that was when the wheels and tires got a lot bigger. The cars got heavier, uh, so the minimum weight limit came up. However, with any big rules change, that was a big rules change in 2022, there was a large increase in the mass of the cars, uh, inherently by the design nature, by having those bigger and heavier wheels and tires. And what that means is, is that some teams are struggling to get to the minimum weight. Now, once you're below the minimum weight, you're all good. You can just add ballast to get to the minimum weight and you put that ballast where you want it to be. But if you're above the minimum weight, you're actually just losing lap time with no benefit. So if you're, say, two, three kilos over, you're losing a lot of time. So if you're overweight, you need to find any way you can to strip weight off mm -hmm. and with the paint, let's say that on an F1 car that the, the paint weighs around about one and a half kilos. If you can strip, say, 30% of the paint off the car, well, then you save that 500 grams we spoke about earlier. Have there been any recent developments in paint science when it comes to Formula One? Yeah, so the, the coatings used on F1 cars are very specific, lightweight coatings. Obviously, it, it's not quite my speciality into the coatings themselves, but my understanding is, is that you can get a very thin coating that still achieves the color you want and is very low density, so you get a lightweight coating. Uh, and a few years ago, I think around about sort of 2016, 2017, teams started rolling out these matte paint finishes. So instead of running gloss, they were running matte. Uh, and by using these finishes, they they were reducing a lot the, the weight of the paint on the car. Um, some of the estimates being thrown around at the time was that this could be worth up to about 600 grams. Now, I, hmm. obviously, you can never be sure with the numbers that come out from F1. But if that is correct, then that's a big weight saving just from changing the paint from gloss to matte. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily make that correlation. So one of the appeals for some F1 fans is how teams really have to work creatively to meet constantly changing requirements for these cars. When you were with Mercedes as an engineer, I mean, was that a frustrating part of your job? Was it an opportunity to get creative? How did you feel about these, these changing requirements? Yeah, I think the, the change of regs is a, a super interesting thing for the engineers because it, it happened, the aerodynamic regs changed quite a lot in the, the time span I was at Mercedes. Uh, and it was usually to do with things like trying to help the cars behind follow. So they would do adjustments like they would say, you have less barge board height, or you have to have a different front wing with less curvature. And basically what this does is that it completely throws your old design out the window. And then you have a new design, a new airflow uh, all over the car. 
And you have to now come up with new concepts that work better with that. And every time they change the rules, what you developed before as a concept won't necessarily work anymore. So it means you now have to come up with something from scratch. So it's quite exciting from that perspective in that you move out of this region of, of optimizing an existing design into creating fresh and new designs that can deal with the new flow features. So from that point, it's interesting. It's always a little bit nerve wracking from the point of view of when you're in a team like Mercedes, where we, I think Mercedes won, what, seven, eight championships in a row you're going on a winning streak and then the rules change and then you're terrified that this rules change is going to result in your car being super slow and it gives an opportunity for another team to come up. And while I was at Mercedes, we successfully defended across several rules changes, but it is a bit nerve wracking <laughs> thinking that you might have an issue where a rules change causes you to get a much slower car that could not win anymore. Right. I would imagine. Just a quick note, I'm Kathleen Davis and this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. In case you're just joining us, I'm talking to Kyle Forrester about the aerodynamic science of Formula One. Are there future F1 engineering innovations that you've got your eye on that you're really excited to see get implemented in the future? Oh, that, that's an interesting question, um, because the, the thing with the, the innovations in F1 is, is that a lot of it is getting more and more controlled by the rules these days. Mm. Um, obviously, a lot of your audience is based in the USA and may be familiar with IndyCar. Now, IndyCar is, is a spec series where basically all the cars are essentially the, the same car. There's some slight differences, but fundamentally, the, the tub and the core design of the car is the same. In F1... All the designs are completely different, like we discussed earlier, but the rules have been tightening year on year to try and bring a little bit more convergence to the cars, and that is hopes to make the racing better. And largely that does seem to be the case because the, the field is, is drawing closer. However, it does stifle a little bit some of the, the innovations that you'd expect to see. For example, in the sort of 2020 spec cars, we had all this really cool uh, hydraulic suspension, but these days you're actually really limited. You're not allowed to have hydraulic suspension anymore. You're not allowed to have inerters, which are another suspension technology. So from that perspective, uh, you lose a lot of those cool developments. However, one of the things that I'm quite interested in is there's a new set of powertrain rules coming out soon. And those rules should lead to some new and interesting powertrain solutions. And I think that what we see coming out in those next few years over the, the powertrain changes could be quite interesting. Mm -hmm. So looking forward a bit, I mean, F1 still largely uses gasoline-powered engines. There has been a little bit of a move to hybrids, but these gas-powered engines are still king. Formula E is something that exists, which is a race for electric cars. But is there a tension between this nostalgic history in the sport for gas-powered engines and switching to something like electric motors? Yeah, I, I think uh, in terms of the the tension, a lot of the tension seems to be more on the, within the fans than the engineers. Uh, as mm. an engine engineer, I don't specifically have a problem with it moving to more electric. Uh, I think the largest issue is the energy density issue, where at the moment these cars are so heavily dependent on on weight for performance that if you start to add mass by having poor energy density, the car will get a lot slower. So that issue needs to be solved. And that's one of the, the holdups of electric powertrains is that they just don't have the energy density. So from an engineering perspective, you have to solve that. And then once that's solved, once your energy density issue is solved, well, then I, I don't see any issue with, with them moving to full electric once we get to that point. But I do know that there is a lot of tension when you go out on social media and have a look that 
a lot of fans are interested in the purity. And personally, I do love the noise of uh, particularly the older generation F1 cars uh, back when they were, were V10s and even the V8s. Um, the, the sound of those when you're next to them in real life is, is quite something. And that will be something that will be a bit sad to, to lose once we move to a, a more electric-based car. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, I hope you have a good race week and thank you for, uh, for being with us. No problems at all. Pleasure to be here. Dr. Kyle Forrester, former aerodynamicist for the Mercedes-AMG F1 team and a lead aerodynamicist for JKF Consultants. That's it for today. Lots of folks helped make the show happen this week, including... Ariel Zich. Santiago Flores. Dee Petersmith. Phyllis Mayers. And many more. On Monday, a new memoir about searching for life in the universe and the joy and wonder of finding your place within it all. I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week on Science Friday.